Hello, everyone, and welcome to Urban Wilderness. I'm the creator and host, Elise Michelow. This is a podcast about bushcraft and wilderness survival. This is my very first episode. I'll be reviewing a great book, Hatchet by Gary Paulson. Reading this book again makes me laugh. I was forced to read it in junior high, but I liked it, and I plan on reading the sequels. I've read other books by Gary Paulson, Woodsong, and This Side of Wild. In Woodsong, the author confesses that he regrets spending so much of his youth hunting and trapping. The book starts when he recalls witnessing a pack of wolves hunting a single doe. He expresses admiration for predators in the wild, but acknowledges that hunting is often a cruel process where it's common for the prey to be eaten alive. However, he states that the wolf does not know it's a wolf. In Woodsong, Gary closes with saying that the main difference between humans and animals in the wilderness is fire. Humans create and use fire, and animals do not. Just one of the many truths driven home in his novels. Now, let's talk about Hatchet. The novel is about Brian Robson, a 13-year-old boy alone in the northern wilderness of Canada. He makes it clear at the beginning of the book that he's never even been on a plane before. He often recalls reading about wilderness survival from a novice perspective, as well as having seen um, things on TV or in movies, the dude is a fan of PBS in a major way. This is so true for me, it's kind of sad. But not really, because I'm trying. Anyways, the pilot has a heart attack and Brian's ride crashes into a lake. The first of his problems after surviving the crash is mosquitoes and blackflies. Mosquitoes, wow. There's around 3,500 species, and I admit, I'm not surprised to find that they kill the most humans more than any other animal. Over 700,000 people fall victim to mosquitoes each year. They're vectors for some of the most infectious diseases on our planet. They transmit their saliva into our bodies, and we as hosts experience itching and swelling. Just to quickly touch on the black fly, they are not houseflies. Their bite is deeper than mosquitoes, and they take chunks. Ew. But it's mostly the females that feed on the blood of mammals. A couple of sources tell me that the males feed mainly on nectar, but just like mosquitoes, they also spread disease. Brian also talks about seeing animals during his stay in the northern wilderness. He sees a beaver lodge and references further knowledge from, and I quote, a nature special. Yeah, that's PBS for sure. He is also able to identify pine, spruce, and aspen trees. Woof. Easier said than done for a city person. I had a tree in my own front yard and never bothered to find out what it was. It was an elm tree. And I never, I never knew until I had a problem with caterpillars. So I gotta say, not bad, Brian. Not bad. Until he justifies drinking lake water because, and again I quote, it looks blue. And he must have swallowed a bunch during the plane crash. Woof. I mean, he was fine and continues to be fine drinking the lake water, but if you're going to justify drinking water to yourself, don't judge a lake by its color. Your body requires water to deliver oxygen and nutrients to your brain and organs. At the same time, water removes toxins from the body. It's also vital for thermoregulation because our organs function at maximum capacity at a very narrow range of ideal temperature. All of these processes require clean and potable H2O. Using fire to boil water is the most believable way for Brian to purify his drinking water, given his circumstances. But just to note, a charcoal filter could also be used. 
These filters absorb nasty tasting chemicals from water and remove odors. They're great for making drinking water more palatable. So getting water from the lake is a given, but Brian could also consider other sources like dew and water from edible vegetation like raspberries, which he encounters later in the book. Satisfying his thirst only paves the way for hunger. Brian's idealistic state of mind is reinforced when he becomes hungry because he immediately imagines what the hero in a movie would do. He also imagines his rescue tomorrow. Woof. At the very least, Brian is able to recall events before the crash. He remembers the pilot steering them off course as he had the heart attack. He estimates that they may have crashed three to 400 miles off course. For a reference, one mile is 1.6 kilometers. He's smart to use the lake to navigate his way around, wandering only away from it for food. How ironic, since he relies so heavily on fish later on in the book. He plans to keep water on his right, turn around, and then keep the water on his left. So, you can discern north using the North Star. Sirius, the hunting dog of Orion, can light your way. In the night sky, locate the Big Dipper and focus on the two stars that form the front of the cup. Follow a line crossing these two stars and extend out beyond the top of the cup. The North Star lies on this line and True North lies on the horizon directly below the North Star. You could also use a shadow stick. It uses the sun to create a line on the ground that runs east and west. You need a flat surface and a stick that's about a foot long. After staking the stick in the ground, place another shorter stick along the ground in the shadow of the original stick. Wait at least 30 minutes. Now place another small stick on, along the ground in the new position of the shadow. Now all you have to do is draw a line to connect the two tips of the smaller sticks. This line will run east-west. My source says that the longer you wait between laying marker sticks, the more accurate your indication of east-west will be. You can also use this method with Moonlight if you really have to. Both methods would serve Brian as a primitive compass for finding his way back to the lake when he goes out foraging. He eventually finds berries that grow in bunches like grapes, but have large pits like cherries, bright red when young, and dark maroon, almost black when ripe. If you've read the books, you know that these berries are a bust in the worst way possible. But eventually he finds raspberries, which is interesting because while picking them, he encounters a black bear. He sees it and recalls an Asiatic black bear he saw at the zoo one time. So just a quick overview of bears. There are three categories of dangerous encounters. Females protecting their cubs, interrupting bears that are habituated to foraging human food, and bears defending a fresh kill. My sources say to make your presence known. It can be worse than you know to take a bear by surprise. In the book, Brian is picking raspberries and the bear sees him first. It assesses him and luckily chooses to ignore him and continue eating berries. It's worth noting that there is no such thing as a minimum safe distance from a bear. They will outrun you, uphill or downhill. Woof. The bear Brian encounters is a black bear. There are around 650,000 black bears in North America. The name is misleading because their fur can be brown or even blonde in color. Black bears are fiercely protective of their personal space and are gifted tree climbers. It's not long after the bear that he encounters a porcupine. They are the second largest rodent found in the Canadian wilderness. 
The biggest are our loud, proud beavers. Porcupine quills are actually hairs, modified by generations of evolution. Quills are concentrated mostly on tails and around their faces. They do not have quills on their muzzles, legs, or undersides. Brian gets a couple quills sunk into his leg and he pulls them out with his hand. It's pretty terrible. I'd say what Brian experiences is a puncture wound, characterized by disturbance of soft tissues. Infections common with these wounds because bacteria and other materials carried by the penetrating object remain in the wound. His first steps after removing the quills should be to apply direct pressure to the wound and control bleeding. Once the wound begins to clot, wash it with drinkable water and soap if you have it, then continue washing the wound and removing any debris. Debris in this case is defined as dead skin, dirt, and any other foreign materials. Once bleeding is controlled, run clean water over the wound and it's time for some clean, dry dressing. A bandage should cover the dressing and be firm, but not too tight. Check the wound and apply clean dressing daily. It's normal to have slight redness and swelling, as well as some drainage from a healing wound, but watch for signs of infection. This includes, but is not limited to, pus drainage, significant swelling, pain and redness, especially if the redness is uh, spreading, and fever is automatically a bad sign. It's not an option for Brian, but if an infection advances to these signs, seek immediate medical care. Brian does end up surviving, obviously, but there's more to learn about here than just injury. During the encounter, he throws the hatchet at the porcupine in the darkness and misses, but it hits the wall of the cave and makes a shower of sparks. He describes the cave wall as stone with small chunks of black rock that shower sparks when he hits them with the pull of the hatchet. So he's found a natural flint and steel to start a fire. Now he needs tinder and kindling. Let's start with tinder because it's the most important. It's the first fuel source for your ignition comes into contact with. It needs to be fine and it needs to be dry. Brian shaves birch bark with the hatchet and the result is so fine that it resembles a ball of fluff the size of a bird's nest. Next, he needs kindling. Kindling is larger than tinder. It requires more effort to ignite, but it's not consumed as quickly. He uses a shredded $20 bill, but twigs, small sticks, and dry pine needles could also be used. The process of gathering the components for a fire greatly varies, but one thing all environments have in common is that you should gather everything before you even start your spark. It's kind of funny that Brian fuels his first fire as it grows, running off, abandoning his flames to grab more fuel. He doesn't gather firewood ahead of time, but it works out in the end, which is basically a miracle. He feeds it for an entire day until the fire forms hot coals. It's nice as a reader you feel for him when he discovers that the smoke keeps the bugs away. You also share his realization of a signal fire becoming possible. A signal fire requires multiple fires, ideally three placed in a row or in a triangle in an open area. Before you build a signal fire, consider if it will put you in danger. A strong wind can easily blow your signal flames beyond your control. Also, take inventory of your resources. Can you afford to feed such a demanding fire? You need shelter. Shelter away from the elements is key to your survival. Torching what you need to build a shelter will not help you. Uh, smoke, a smoke signal fire is also an option. The key to success here is to build a large fire first then add fuel that will cause the fire to emit large quantities of smoke. 
These are things like large leafy branches, live wood, evergreen boughs, live grasses, as well as rubber from mini tires or synthetics. For Brian, this could mean dried materials from aircraft interiors or linings. But when burning synthetics, always take care not to inhale any volume of smoke. The miracle of fire and hope of rescue is immediately followed by another chance encounter. Brian eventually finds nutritious food when he unearths some turtle eggs on the shore of the lake. He eats one raw. Well, actually, he eats six. I'm kind of concerned about him eating raw turtle eggs, but that's because I know next to nothing about them. I am familiar with the dietary basics of chicken eggs. An average egg from a domestic chicken contains 72 calories, some fat, some protein, vitamins A, B2, B5, and B12. They also contain minerals like selenium and phosphorus. Almost all nutrition are present in the egg yolk, and the egg white, the albumin, contains the protein. Nutrition is limited from raw eggs simply because the nutrients are either reduced or completely blocked from the human digestive tract, specifically biotin, also known as vitamin B7. There's also a great risk of salmonella, which is a natural part of bacterial flora present in a healthy chicken, but not a healthy human. Brian remains healthy, just chowing down on raw turtle eggs. I begin to notice a change in Brian when he starts gathering firewood in advance, enough for three days. The changes in Brian become obvious to himself when he views his reflection and comments on his weight loss and his dark tan. But more importantly, when he talks about the difference between just noticing things and really seeing them. Brian finally starts thinking about fishing when he sees a kingfisher bird swoop down and grab a meal. When he looks into the lake, Brian sees fish, naturally, but he also recognizes clams and crayfish. Refraction is a huge problem when he tries spearfishing. It's the deflection of light when it passes from one medium to another and the two vary in density. It affects our eye's ability to measure things as well as focus on them. Brian compensates by placing the tip of his spear into the water. To catch fish, Brian makes a willow spear and splits the end, wedging it into two prongs with a stone. A spear is best when crafted from greenwood because it's more durable. The tips of the spear can be sharpened and then hardened with fire, or sharpened into barbs that point inward. Brian decides that his spear is still too slow, and he wants a bow and arrow. While he is looking for wood to craft a bow, a rescue plane passes overhead somewhere. He's too far off course that he only ever hears the plane. He doesn't actually see it. But after a brief period of panic, Brian resumes crafting, making willow arrows and a slender bow with a bowstring made from his shoelace. Refraction is still a problem, but eventually he does a food. When you do catch a fish, cut the throat and leave it hanging with the head down. That will allow the fish to bleed out. Just let gravity do all the work for you. Then slice the belly from throat to anus, removing its guts. Brian is intuitive enough to use entrails and scraps of fish for future lures. Some sources say to remove the skin. Other sources say to leave it on because it's nutritious. Others say to remove it because of possible toxins. I want to take this opportunity to remind my listeners that my podcast is for entertainment purposes only. However, that being said, my main source has been Morse Kachansky, and he encourages leaving the skin on. He says the skin is rich in good vitamins and minerals, given you know your source, so fillet away 
if you so desire. Speaking of food, eventually Brian's turtle egg collection draws a skunk. The skunk sprays him, blinding him for two hours. The irritation bothers him for weeks, and the smell lingers in the shelter and on his clothes for a month and a half. I'd like to share some facts about skunks, starting with the most shocking one. In Canada, skunks are some of the most common carriers of the rabies virus, along with foxes and bats. I think most people think it's wolves, but that's based on literally nothing more than hearsay and conclusions drawn from Old Yeller. Woof. Skunks also seem to be aware of their own stinky abilities. They don't tend to spray in close quarters or down in their own dens. After the skunk incident, Brian weaves a tight wall and door for his shelter from willow branches. He admits his location for a shelter was good, but he was lazy in its fortification, and he paid for it with his turtle eggs. Brian's Shelter 2.0 has a door, a high shelf for food storage, and a hole for smoke to rise from his fire, now constant because of hot burning coals. He concludes that he cannot store fish on his new shelf, but he is able to store live fish. He constructs a pen out in the lake from rocks. He lures in fish using scraps from other fish and closes it with a gate of woven willow branches. Very well done, but at this point, Brian claims he begins to crave meat. He locates a type of bird that is foolish, but also well camouflaged. He calls them fool birds. He begins to realize that he has to look for the pear shape of the bird. The outline is what matters, not the pattern of the feathers. I can relate to this because while hunting for deer, I looked for the white tail of the bucks in the bush and not the outline of the entire animal. It often led me to say, deer, oh, no, wait, it's just a white piece of trash strung up on a fence. Very embarrassing when you're out with experienced hunters because you're doing it wrong. Oh man. Anyways, when Brian does shoot a bird with his bow and arrow, he finds himself rushing to cook it. He cooks it rotisserie style, which is about cooking the meat without burning the bird's skin and the outer breast. You want to start by bleeding the carcass completely. If you fail to do this, the meat will spoil quickly. But it's easy because gravity will aid you in this process just like the fish. Slice the jugular and veins in the neck on either side of the windpipe. Avoid slicing the windpipe unless you're okay with stomach contents contaminating the blood. Because sometimes you can keep the blood. Blood is rich in salt and valuable nutrients. Personally, I take a hard pass on eating blood. But if I was starving in the wilderness like Brian, I might change my mind. But if saving the blood is not a concern for you, then cut the windpipe as well. Brian glues bird feathers to willow branches with sap he found from a tree stump, and he makes better arrows. And eventually, he's able to hunt rabbits. Clean it, gut it, post it on Instagram. <laughs> I've been told it's like helping a rabbit take off its sweater. But if you're dressing a larger animal, take leave the hide on, because it'll make it easier for you to drag the carcass back to your camp. Overall, I think Brian does a pretty good job. He's surviving. It really comes together when the tornado hits. It destroys almost everything he's worked so hard for, and it disturbs the lake. But his first thought is, at first light, I will rebuild. Good for you, Brian. Of course, if you've read the book, you know what the disturbance of the lake does. It raises the plane. Skipping ahead a bit, for curiosity's sake, the survival kit salvaged from the plane contains a sleeping bag, 
some small aluminum pots and pans, forks, knives, and spoons, matches in a waterproof container, two butane lighters, a sheath knife with a compass in the handle, first aid kit with scissors, fishing kit with lines, hooks, and lures, a 22 survival rifle with bullets, an emergency transmitter beacon, hint hint, two bars of soap, MREs with meat, fruit drinks mixes, and dessert mixes. Pretty sweet haul, Brian. At the end, the very end, he does research and discovers that the original berries were choke cherries, the fool birds were rough grouse, the turtle eggs were from a snapping turtle, it turns out his favorite fish were lake perch. Jeez. I can only close this episode by saying that I know about as much as Brian does at the beginning of the book, which is okay. Morris Kachansky published his famous book titled Bushcraft with people like me in mind. And in the next episode of Urban Wilderness, I'm going to discuss just that. We must learn the difference between noticing nature and truly seeing it. You guys can check me out on Twitter as at Urban, Urban Wild Pod and Instagram as at Urban Wilderness Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. Bye.